All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and uh, I'm really proud of the way I organized this outline. Like, I just felt really, like, I felt like I was writing a really good essay with structuring it. I feel like you're always writing a really good essay. Well, in this case, like, instead of doing, like, my normal, here's a thematic thing we're going to talk about, I split it into... Uh, the body, the spirit, and the mind, and I so good, and I feel really good about that. <laughs> and I needed everybody to hear about it yeah. so that you could you could all be like, "Oh wow, so smart." I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and um, this movie probably has one of my favorite endings of all time. It's it's pretty good. It's pretty. It's pretty. Good. It's like one frame where you're like, "Oh," and it just like <laughs> for me that one just changed the whole movie for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, today we're talking about Saint Maud. Um, I do want to give a uh, content warning before we start this episode. We're going to talk extensively about self-harm, suicide, and sexual... Well, the sexual assault gets a mention, not so much like an in-depth discussion. Um, but these are all things that happen within the context of the movie. We're not going to be talking like any more... I mean, the detail in the movie is pretty... That's enough. Um, we're not going to go beyond the scope of the movie or anything like that or talk like in really um, graphic detail... But I do want to give that warning that that content will be part of this episode. Um, so today we're talking about St. Maud, a 2020 horror film by first time feature director Rose Glass. Um, the film follows Maud, uh, previously known as Katie, uh, a young woman who has recently converted to Catholicism after a traumatic experience where she accidentally killed a patient. And this was based on the real experience of um, one of the director, like someone the director knew. She had been performing CPR on somebody who had recently had uh, chest surgery, like heart surgery or something like that. And his chest collapsed while she was giving him CPR. Gross. Um, yeah. Uh, so Maude ends up working as a palliative care nurse to Amanda, a former dancer dying of cancer. Um, Maude experiences strange religious visions and a sort of ecstasy stemming from her connection with God, which she begins to share with an Amanda who is agnostic or atheist. I don't think it's really clear. Well, she does say God isn't real, but it's also unclear, like, is she saying that because she believes it or is she saying that because she's trying to hurt Maude? We just don't know. We just don't know. Um, as they grow closer together, Maude tells Amanda's lover, who is a woman, to leave as she is causing Amanda to waste what is left of her life. Amanda humiliates Maude at a party, accusing her of being either a bigot or being jealous. Uh, and Amanda slaps her and is fired from her position. Uh, she deserved that slap. She, yeah, she did deserve that slap. That was a nasty, that was yeah, a nasty, nasty thing to do. Um, Maude then starts drinking and having sex again, but after what appears to be some kind of seizure in her apartment, after drinking too much, she levitates and begins hearing God speak directly to her, and we start experiencing that alongside her as viewers. Up until that point, we see, like, her ecstasy and that kind of stuff. We don't, like, hear God. Um, she goes back to Amanda's house, and after Amanda apologizes for how she treated her, she states that nothing Maude does matters, and Maude begins to see her as possessed by a demon. Uh, she murders Amanda with a pair of scissors, then returns home briefly before going to a public beach and lighting herself on fire. Um, and initially, we see the event through her eyes, which depicts her as this, like, fiery angel that's, like, basking in the flames, before an extremely quick shot of Maude's actual body burning and a scream of horror. Um, so... 
At least she felt good about dying. Well, for a while, at least. I, <laughs> she did seem to be screaming in pain after the illusion shattered, but... You know, you, you know, know, some good. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, I was very proud of the way that I um, broke up this outline. So, the first thing we're going to talk about is the body. Um, because I think that this movie does deal really heavily with those three things. The body, the spirit, and the mind. Yeah, it really is perfect. Um, so, the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. So, for such a short movie, because um, it is, it's only an hour and a half. Like, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, the movie itself is, like, slow-paced, but it is it is quite short and it manages to do a lot in that very confined space um so saint Maud is concerned with a few really big concepts the body the soul the mind um i want to start with the body because it's one of the most visible and obvious things that the film is examining in the context of religion it's pretty obvious like it's obvious pretty early in the film that Maud is deliberately hurting herself um, usually in a fashion we would know as self, self-flagellation or mortification of the flesh, um, which in a religious context is meant to uh, repent for sins and to share in the passion of Jesus Christ. Um, there's other reasons that people self-harm. Um, there's a lot of reasons, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but um, mod self-harm is maybe not rooted because I think there's a lot going on there. But she is self-harming in a way that is consistent with the uh, the religious idea of mortification mm. in the flesh. Like, there is a religious component to it. She puts the corn kernels on the ground. She um, kneels on top of them and prays. That's that's something that comes from religion. Um, Ouch. She puts the tacks or the nails through, like, the picture Ugh. of the saint. Ugh. And walks on again. That's that's mortification of the flesh. It's still self harm, but it is not. Uh, it is not um, secular self harm. It is it is self harm of a religious nature. And, and this increases as the movie goes on, especially after her fight with Amanda. Uh, we see increasing amounts of self harm. Uh, importantly, the very literal and painful ways that Maude is hurting herself are not the only church-sanctioned methods of mortification of the flesh. This is important to understand. The church is not saying always you must be kneeling on corn kernels and walking on nails. Um, Abstinence, that's mortification of the flesh. Interesting. Fasting, that's mortification of the flesh. Uh, Pious kneeling, like just kneeling, not kneeling on corn kernels, just kneeling. Um, that's mortification of the flesh. And those are in fact like three of the most common forms of mortification of the flesh. Um, It, it is telling that Maud chooses these very violent, destructive, and extreme methods of self-flagellation. She's not just like fasting, right? Which is an acceptable method of, of mortification of the flesh. She is abstinent for, for much of the movie, but you know, how much of that is like, I don't, I don't think that she thinks that that is mortification of the flesh and we'll get more into her relationship with religion, but I don't I think, think she thinks it's a sin. So abstaining from it is just, what you're supposed to right. do. Right. And, and and abstaining can mean sex, obviously, but it can also mean like dessert or, you know, just denying yourself pleasures. Denying yourself dessert truly is the mortification of the flesh. It is. I did not deny myself dessert <laughs> last night and I have no fucking regrets. I haven't eaten breakfast because I woke up still full. <laughs> <laughs> I had some fruit and pancake. Um, so Maude chooses these extremely violent and like, long-lasting methods of mortification of the flesh. Um, 
Because we know she feels guilt and shame over what happened with the patient that she accidentally killed, it really seems to me as though she is more interested in the punishment aspect of self-flagellation than the, like, sharing in the passion of the Christ part. Like, is she trying to experience Jesus's suffering or is she punishing herself? And it feels a lot more like she is punishing herself. Um, And I think this is especially true because she is not doing this on the suggestion of a church. Like she's not going to confession and being told to atone for, I don't know. Listen, I'm not religious. I don't know how a lot of things work, but I'm pretty sure that like the Catholic church is no longer recommending like (laughs) walking around on nails. Like, yeah, I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they are. But from my understanding, they instead have you do like prayers and that kind of stuff. You always hear the 10 Hail Marys. Yeah, exactly. That's what I that's what I assume is more the norm. It's probably like that and like apologize. Yeah. And accept your your issue or something like that. Yeah. Um, so more Ma- realistic stuff. Yeah. Maude is not going to, to a church and saying, hey, I did a sin. What do I do? And they say walk on nails she's choosing to do that for herself these are punishments that she is setting for herself nobody is telling her to do them and that's what makes it self-harm right like Mm -hmm. she is she is actively choosing to harm herself and she is self-destructive literally under the guise of piety to the point that i think a lot of her actions almost read as blasphemous like she takes it so far that i don't think this is piety i think you're blaspheming like who who is she torturing herself for? Why doesn't she trust in God to forgive her when that was kind of Jesus's whole deal? It's a shtick. <laughs> um, this raises a really important question to me as, you know, as we're watching it. Obviously, she's pious, right? I believe that she believes. But is anything she does really about God or is it about herself? I super think it's about herself. I agree. Especially since we don't really see her like have conversations with God. We see her have like orgasms with God. Right. And we'll get more. We'll get more into that. Like, what is her relationship with God throughout the episode? Um, And we'll return to this question many times, like throughout each section. Um, so there is also re- a relationship between bodily harm and ecstasy. Um, we'll talk more about pleasure in a moment, but harm to the body can cause disassociation and a release of endorphins, like at a chemical level, um, both of which can be to a certain extent pleasurable. And this is one of many reasons that people practice masochism, right? It doesn't have to be, I don't, I'm not referring exclusively to a sexual conte- context. People who self-harm, Um, There's a variety of reasons to self-harm, but one of them is the release of endorphins and the state of dissociation Mm -hmm. because that can, you know, put you outside of your body long enough to escape whatever pain that you're experiencing, whether it's emotional or physical pain. Um, But, you know, in in a pleasurable context, masochism, like controlled masochism can result in pleasure. Um, Obviously, it's not true in every circumstance. Uh, Sometimes pain is just pain, but you know, under certain circumstances, self-harm or harm from others can result in pleasure. But when you see Maud's face as she walks on tacks or the fascination she has with picking at the burn, 
Uh, I think there Ugh. is a pleasure to it, right? Like she's fascinated. I think there's a catharsis that she's really, yeah, really using. Um, it's not necessarily a sexual pleasure that I think she's getting out of these things, but it is still a kind of pleasure. She could choose to self-flagellate through other means, like mm-hmm. fasting, right? That's something that she could choose, but she doesn't. She punishes herself by inflicting bodily harm, which at once harkens back to the accidental killing of her patient. Yeah. She inflicted bodily harm on that patient. And it brings her closer to God for pleasure, right? Um, and and again, when you just when you look at her face, it's there's this there's this very subtle expression on there. I think of smugness. Oh, one hundred percent. When she's walking on tax, smug person. Yeah, when she's walking on tax, or I can't remember if it was tax or nails, but when she's walking around with tax. those, there's that expression on her face of like. You don't know how pious I am. Exactly. <laughs> like there's a self-righteousness and a smugness to it. Absolutely. Um, for obvious reasons, we typically assume a relationship with God is a chaste one, right? Like I think for the, for the majority of us, we're like, if you have a relationship with God, it's you're, you know, it's not, it's chaste. You're not, you're not having that kind of a relationship with God. <laughs> Except Maud. Except Maud. Um, much of Christianity and our culture makes sex and even just physical pleasure, including like nice tasting food and soft clothes. Um, out the, it, our culture makes those things out to be indulgent and sinful. Um, but there is also precedent in Christian history for a relationship with God, not just one of joy and love, but also of pleasure. And this is known, this is known as religious ecstasy. Um, so when I first read this part, I was like, I like missed the religious part. And I thought we were about to talk about ecstasy. The drug? Yeah. No, no, I don't. I don't believe that Maude is doing ecstasy. <laughs> I was like, whoa, she might have in her previous life, but um, not in this one. Uh, so St. Teresa of Avila uh, is a Catholic saint, and she's one of the most famous examples of religious ecstasy. So St. Teresa ran away from home as a child to attempt to become a martyr. Like, that was actually her goal. She was going to go die in war to become a martyr. I think she ran away with her brother. Um, and later in life, she was sent to a nunnery where she began to study religion. Um, the Wikipedia page is a bit muddled. Uh, so as best as I can parse out, St. Teresa was kind of a sickly person, like just in general. Um, with a penchant for mortification of the flesh, which meant that she fell ill multiple times. Like if, if you're already, you know, prone to illness and then you keep like cutting your flesh, um, you're going to get infections yeah, and you're going to be infected. sick more often. Um, so following one illme- illness that almost killed her, uh, St. Teresa began experiencing religious ecstasy instead or a form of almost dissociative pleasure stemming from a religious source. This includes things like speaking in tongues like that. That is a form of religious ecstasy. Uh, Interestingly, many of St. Teresa's writings could be lines from Maud's journal. Um, So this is this is from St. Teresa. She wrote. Uh, I saw in his hand a long spear of gold, and at the point there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails, and when he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. Absolutely. So, uh excuse my pronunciation here Gian Lorenzo Bernini did a very famous sculpture of what she is discussing here this vision she had of an angel um repeatedly stabbing her with a spear which 
even though it would have been heretical at the time to imply this, uh, if you look at St. Teresa's face in this sculpture, she looks like she's having an orgasm. She looks like she's experiencing physical ecstasy. She is moaning. Yeah, like if you have you looked at the no, the, the sculpture, it's quite uh, intense. But it would have been heretical to de- to depict that to say uh, Saint Teresa is having an orgasm here. So like I don't know if that's what Bernini was intending, but it sure looks like that was he that is what he was intending. Uh, Saint Teresa also wrote, uh, "Lord, either let me suffer or let me die." Again. Oh yeah could be straight out of Maud's journal. Um, And she was also said to experience embarrassing raptures. Like that's how she defined them as embarrassing, which included levitation. Like Hmm. supposedly she would levitate and so embarrassing. So embarrassing when that happens. Um, But that's something that we see Maud do as well. Right. She levitates at one point. Yeah. Clearly is similar. Yeah. Um, So this is a quote from The Many Overlooked Benefits of Ecstasy, which is by Olivia Goldhill. And again, this is ecstasy, not the the drug, just the concept of ecstasy. Um, And Olivia Goldhill writes, "Our Our resistance to ecstasy in the West dates back to the Enlightenment period in the 18th century, Evan says, when we shifted from an enchanted to a materialist worldview and when ecstatic experiences were associated with mental illness. Before then, ecstasy was seen in Christian culture as a way of connecting spiritual forces, both good and bad, to the self. So while ecstasy could be a negative experience and sign of possession, it could also be a connection to God, something that brought healing and inspiration. Um, So until a certain point in our history, ecstasy, especially religious ecstasy, was not a source of shame, but rather of devotion. So if you were experiencing this this feeling of religious ecstasy, that was a good thing. It could also be a sign of possession, but that them's the breaks. Um, Sometimes you're possessed. Sometimes you're possessed by God, I guess. Um, Happens. And Goldhill makes an important connection here that will serve us well when looking at St. Maud, because after the Enlightenment, ecstasy and religious ecstasy included became associated with mental illness rather than a con- than like a spiritual connection. Um, another interesting point in this movie is when Amanda gives Maud a book of William Blake's art. I love that. I did too. Um, Blake was an English poet, painter, and printmaker who fam- famously experienced like vivid, intense religious visions. Um, one of those visions, which was of angels in Peckham Rye in England, which inspired the first arc of John Constantine Hellblazer. If you can <laughs> flash back, flash back to the, the angels in the park in that first arc, that was repeatedly referencing William Blake. Um, uh, it's Blake's poetry that the racist man keeps quoting in the park. And it's those angels that he's uh, that he's seeing. Despite having these vivid visions and believing that he was chosen by God, Blake was not religious by the standards of his time. Uh, He resisted organized religion and he repeatedly attacked the church in his writing. Uh, One of the reasons he so opposed organized religion was that he felt it, quote, suppressed natural desires and denied earthly joy. Uh, Blake was very interested in the body as the extension of the soul rather than just as like a house or vessel for the soul um and he advocated in his time for the free love movement which opposed marriage as legal slavery and aimed for the removal of restrictions against homosexuality prostitution and adultery sounds good so he was kind of a he was kind of a radical 
for his for his, for time. his time. Yeah, and you can when you look at William Blake's art, you can see this emphasis on the body, which is not only quite sensual but also features bodies very prominently, often muscled and unashamed of nakedness. Just another connection to a past episode. Um, the uh, Hannibal, the Red Dragon, the painting that oh. that inspires him is William Blake. Again, very sensual, very muscular very centered in the body once we understand blake's history as a as a poet as a painter um we can better understand why amanda might choose to give maude that book as a gift it's not just like hey look at these paintings she's saying a lot with that gift yeah um much like maude blake had visions of god uh much like amanda blake took pleasure in the physical uh, not only do we know that Amanda has a thriving sex life, but we also know she was a dancer. And when we see her performances, they are quite sensual. Um, D- did you notice uh, when she, when Maude was first looking at pictures of Amanda when she was a dancer, there's one where she's like bent over and her hair is out and it looks like sexual. And then later on, Maude, when she's going crazy up the stairs, does the same thing. Oh, no, I didn't notice yeah. that. Um, I noticed it on my second viewing of it. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, so with... By giving Maude this gift, Amanda seems to be saying you don't only have to worship through pain. Like there is because Blake was a person who like believed he had a close relationship with God, but he was also very focused on physical pleasure. She's essentially saying with this gift, the way that you worship is not the only way to worship. Please She's, stop. <laughs> please stop. She's offering her an alternative to the way that she engages with the world and the way that she engages with God. Um, but of course, that's not how things go. Um, so this is a quote from Fantastic Fest Review, St. Maud Wants to Save Your Soul, which is by Emily Sears, who writes, uh, themes of duality also echo in the relationship and personalities of these complex and compelling women. Jennifer L. basically or beautifully embodies both Amanda's animosity toward being trapped in a decaying body that once moved so gracefully, as well as the solemn acceptance of her fate. Her anger often manifests in nights spent attempting to recreate her hedonistic glory days, only to cause herself excruciating pain and more grunt work for Maud. Um, Amanda isn't a selfless person by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) She is bitter and she's angry, especially because she knows that she's coming to the end of her life. Right. Like Mm -hmm. she's not some kind of like she's not a savior either. Um, And I imagine that seeing Maude denying herself any form of pleasure is frustrating because she still has so much life ahead of her. It probably feels to Amanda like Maude is wasting her life. Uh, and that's actually how Maud feels about Amanda as well. Probably why they're so cruel to each other. Yeah. Um, so still, they're they're briefly able to strike up a relationship. We'll get to that relationship in a moment. Um, until Maud sends Amanda's partner away on top of throwing out her alcohol and trying to stop her from partying. For Amanda, that probably feels like Maud is forcing her into Maud's own chaste lifestyle, and she retaliates in the meanest way she can think of by accusing Maud of both jealousy and homophobia. That's like... Cover your bases. Yeah. She's like, either you're jealous or you're a bigot. She was 100% jealous. Yeah, I agree. Uh, put a pin in the homophobia bit for a minute. We'll come back to that. Um, the ac- accusation of jealousy is really interesting, especially when we learn more about Maud's life before she accidentally killed a patient. I don't know what the intent was, but it seems possible to me that Maud is, in fact, jealous of Amanda uh-huh. leading this very sensual life without guilt because Maud no- can no longer live without guilt. Um, Maud doesn't really have a community. Another thing we'll touch on more in a bit. 
Um, so it could be that Maud sending Amanda's lover away and trying to teach her piety as a means of building a community of the kind that she craves. Um, I think she misreads Amanda's gift as being about religion rather than about sensuality and assumes that Amanda wants to be more like her. I think that's accurate. It, yeah, it feels to me like this gift coming from Amanda is about the body. If Maude were to give this gift, it would be about the religion. Yeah, and I think that it might have, because she, she got that book after they had their little time on the on the couch, right? I can't remember. I think it came after, and so I feel like it's like a confirmation of like, I, 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 Maude, I get ya. Yeah, I think Maude is looking at the images and seeing God. Yep. Amanda is looking at the images and seeing the body. Yep. Um, so this is a quote from St. Maud's Rose Glass, Rose Glass explains what's real and what's imagined in her unholy horror debut by Rachel Handler. And this is a quote from Glass herself talking about the movie. The last thing I wanted was for God to be the cerebral academic thing. Even if you don't have faith, the idea of succumbing to ecstasy, coming out of your body, connecting with something bigger than yourself is something anyone can relate to. And it makes her feel really good. The film wouldn't make sense unless she was getting something enjoyable and wonderful out of her relationship with God while the rest of her life is small and humdrum. Uh, Maude seems to think of her body as something made to cause and experience pain, except when she's feeling God. At that point, she seems to be experiencing an intense bodily pleasure. It actually seems to be one of her only sources of pleasure mm -hmm. in the world, especially because she is actively denying all of the others. Um, in contrast, Amanda is dying, but does not deny herself any sources, sources of pleasure, even if they later cause her pain. Like she knows that partying hard is going to mess her up later. And she still continues to do it because that's what she wants to do with her body. Um, uh, Amanda is also an agnostic or an atheist. So her experiencing pleasure does not register her register to her as sinful. She has no guilt about it. Um, it's just indulgent. Yeah. I think we could debate roughly forever about the source of Maud's pleasure. Like, is it physical? Is it mental? Is it mental illness? Um, but the important thing is that while this pleasure that she experiences certainly exists, like, I don't think that we can deny that she is experiencing pleasure. She only allows herself to experience that pleasure through God. Otherwise, pleasure is not allowed. Um, so now we will talk a little bit about queerness in this movie because I find it very, very interesting. And I don't think that there's conclusive, like I can't, I can't be conclusive about any of it, but I can certainly talk about how I read it. Um, I think there is a very valid reading of Maude as rep as repressing her sexuality. Oh, I, that's, that's how I read. That's yeah. how I saw it. Um, the scene where the two of them, ex the two, Amanda and Maude experience religious ecstasy together is certainly charged with sexuality, right? There's a lot of moaning and heads leaning back. And so it looks very sexual. Um, and, Maud's dismissal of Amanda's lover can make sense without her being attracted to Amanda. Like she could just be like, Oh, get out. You're, I mean, she could be homophobic, um, but she could also just be like, you are causing Amanda problems by doing things with her body that her body is not capable of doing. Mm -hmm. You could also be just sinful, whatever. There's a lot of reasons that she could have dismissed Maud's lover. Um, but it makes more sense if you factor in that Maude is jealous of her lover on some level. Mm -hmm. um, we do see Maude with men after she's fired. So she, she has kind of a little rumspringa situation where she goes and <laughs> she gets real drunk and gives a man the most unenthusiastic hand oh, job God. ever. It was awful. <laughs> um, so the, none of those 
interactions that she has. The, the, the drinking is not particularly pleasurable. She gives that man an extremely lifeless hand job in a bar. And then she has sex with another man. Um, when he tries, so she's on top of him and he tries to put his hands on her waist and she, she like pushes his hands away. Um, and then she starts to experience this, experience flashbacks to when she accidentally killed a patient. And then she says no. And he rapes her afterwards. Um, Maude could certainly be bisexual, Mm -hmm. uh, but the only times that we see her experience pleasure are either alone Mm -hmm. or with God or with Amanda. Yeah. So you can think of, you can think of God as a man if you like, and therefore (laughs) Maude's relationship with God is, is straight, quote unquote. (laughs) I don't know. That doesn't work for me, but like you do you. Um, but really the only times we see her experience pleasure for certain are like, alone with God or with Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I just, res- personally, I just can't get down with like <laughs> reading God as, and therefore relationship with God as straight. Like, <laughs> because I don't see God as having a physical, like, I don't know. That's just a mess. I can't unpack. <laughs> um, uh, so to me, her sources of pleasure, therefore seem to come primarily from women. Yeah. Um, it seems like she's forcing the sexual encounters of men. Right, right. Um, I, I think it's tempting to read Maud's dismissal. I think her name is Clara, the uh, Amanda's partner. I'm not sure. But I, like I wrote Clara multiple times, so that's so what that I'm going to call her. That's what I'm going to call her, I guess. Um, it's tempting to read Maud's dismissal of Clara as purely homophobic, like Clara is tempting Amanda towards sin. Um, but I, I think I actually believe Maud when she says she wouldn't care whether Amanda was seeing a man or a woman. Um, Maud has a lot more reason to oppose Clara than pure homophobia. Yeah. And I think that jealousy over how Claire, Clara uses Amanda's time is a big one. Um, I don't know that Maud necessarily thinks of Amanda sexually. Uh, but mm, they did have a good time on that couch. They did. But that was, again, that, that pleasure, I think, was coming from the religious ecstasy and I think some of Maud's pleasure was seeing Amanda experiencing it too, yeah. because that forms community. But that doesn't mean it wasn't also sexual. It's just I don't, I can't see into Maud's mind and see is the pleasure me showing somebody else what I experience, or is it I like to see this girl moan? I don't know. It, it's probably both. The answer is she really just wants to see God moan. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So I don't think I don't know that Maude necessarily thinks of Amanda sexually, but I don't know that she doesn't think of her sexually. Uh, Hence the lingering shots of her doing these like palliative care exercises with her legs and hips. Um, Those things aren't sexual the vast majority of the time. Like doing those kinds of exercises with a patient is not sexual. (laughs) Like that's not what I'm trying to imply. But I think for Maude, they are a little bit. The way that it's filmed yeah. and the cuts, it really, I saw it that way. I definitely saw it that way. Yeah, I think for Maude, they, they maybe are a little bit sexual in the context of Amanda. Um, or they are a reminder that closeness to a hu- another human being can be a source of pleasure too, regardless of whether that pleasure is sexual, romantic, or platonic. Mm-hmm. She's experiencing in, the, in that moment pleasure in the body, like, and it's in another person's body. Whether it's sexual or not is like, I read it as sexual. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be sexual, but it is important for Maude to experience this bodily pleasure. Do you have anything else to say about the, the body section? No. You got it. Great. Um, so now let's talk about the spirit. 
Uh, obviously, Maude did something that troubles her. Right? She's carrying around. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, even if she didn't mean to kill a patient, the patient literally died at her hands, and she is carrying that trauma around. It's not the kind of thing someone can really absolve you of, right? Like, yeah. even if somebody said it's not your fault, because it wasn't her fault, well, right? Because I'm going to assume it was CPR, right? Yeah, it looked to be CPR. And in CPR, you typically break people's ribs. Yeah, um, she was trying to save that patient's life. And so, you know, as as much as anybody can say it wasn't your fault, Maude, she's always going to be stuck wondering, did I press too hard? Yeah. She, I mean, she was sprayed with blood after, like, it was ex- it's an extremely traumatic experience. Um, so she, you know, because nobody can, you know, she really can't believe anybody who says it wasn't your fault. She turns to God and tries to cleanse the guilt that way. She, ex- she is a religious convert. She was not extremely religious before this event. Um, I think Maude sees herself as tarnished by this event. Um, so the, the question for me is whether she's actually faithful or whether faith is a means to an end and whether that end is glory or forgiveness. Like what, what is Maude looking for? I definitely think it's both glory and forgiveness. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, we'll get into that. Um, I mean, we know how the movie ends, right? And it's not glory. <laughs> it's it's not. She that, wants it to be. She wants it to be, but it's not. Um, it, so the question again to return, or sorry. So we know that the end of the movie, she's seeking glory, but she doesn't get it. But that raises the question, was it ever about forgiveness or was it always about glory? And that, hmm? I said, hmm. And and that returns us to that question of is Maud serving God or is she serving herself? Um, and this is a really complicated question, <laughs> right? Like much like the question of whether true altruism exists, right? Yeah. Like it's it's difficult. If Maud is trying to make other people's lives better, arguably she is serving God. But if she knows that she's serving God and begins to help people because she's trying to repent for killing a patient, is she really serving God or is she serving herself? I think that might be part of like why she has the self-harm. Yes. To like convince yourself, this isn't about me. Right. I agree. Um, so I don't know that we can have a clear answer to this question. I mean, this is a question that people have struggled with for centuries. Longer <laughs> right than centuries. Here, we're answering but I've it. got the answer for you. No, I don't. Um, but I think it is what I think this question of is she serving God or is she serving herself is one that is like central to the movie. Uh, if she is serving God, her vision of herself as a martyr could be true, even if her body is literally burning. Um, if she isn't serving God, she's just burning herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the movie comes down hard on the side of her just burning herself. Yeah, it does. But but I also think this question is one that Maude struggles with as well. And that's what makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she's not certain 100% what she's doing until that the uh, where she kills Amanda. I think yeah. until that point, she is not certain. And at that point... Her experience with Amanda is what pushes her over into, no, I'm right. She double downs. Yeah. Um, And that's, uh, anyway, we'll come back to that a bit later. For now, I want to talk about Maude's, like, sacred mission. Uh, Maude is clearly trying to atone, right, for Mm -hmm. this this accidental killing of a patient. Um, And like many people, she is looking for a grand purpose in her life to explain why something so terrible has happened to her. Because it was a traumatic event, even if she's (laughs) not the one who died. Um. She's the one who killed. Yeah. 
Uh, she aims to convert people with her good deeds, but fails to deliver. Like when she gives the homeless person money and then she like, I can't remember what she says, but she says some kind of like, like uh, blessing afterward. Yeah. And it's like, what is it? It's like make use of your pain. Yeah. it. You know, it's something, of course she would say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she said, but she mumbles it. And then he's like, what? And then she's like, nothing. Like she's, she's, she's uncertain about what she's said. Yeah. And I think she's a little ashamed too uh-huh. that she did that. Um, that's definitely what I got. Yeah. Amanda for her represents this new opportunity because Amanda expresses interest in Maud's faith and therefore Maud makes converting Amanda her new purpose. Yeah. If she can convert Amanda, then she has saved Amanda's soul because Amanda is close to death. And then she's saved the one for one. Exactly. Uh, so this is a, not a quote, but there's a great video from Acolytes of Horror who really does just make great videos on horror films. Um, and he did one on St. Maud, which is called St. Maud, God is, God is a Self-Portrait. Um, and so in this video, he talks about uh, there being a number of relationship dynamics between Maud and Amanda, one being like savior and sinner. Um, but the only one Maud seems to identify with and the only one that grants her any power is that of savior because, you know, she's also caretaker patient. There's, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, living and dying. Like there's a number of relationships there, but saint or sa- savior and sinner are, is the only one that Maud seems particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. And it is the one that grants her the most power. Um, it is not surprising then that she latches onto it and makes that her entire identity going forward. There's nothing to Maud beyond being a savior. And when Amanda rejects that, that's an issue yeah. for Maud. So when she's fired from that position, she loses not only her job, but also her life's purpose. If she can't succeed at converting Amanda, probably her soul is lost. Yeah, she's not a good nurse. She's not a good savior. Yeah. Um, it isn't surprising then that she falls back into her old lifestyle like immediately after losing her job and then hard corrects into not just being a savior, but being an avenging angel slash martyr. Like that's a really extreme, uh, extreme turn. If she, if Maud can't be a savior to Amanda, she decides she will make herself a martyr and quote unquote save as many people as possible. Because if you witness like an, an a miracle like that, which did not look like a miracle to the people witnessing it, but if they saw what Maud saw, you know, her with wings and like basking in these flames, that would be a religious miracle yeah. and might cause these people to convert. I think it definitely would. Yeah, I think that'd be pretty somebody with up. wings. I'd be like, I guess that shit's real. My whole life just came into question. Yeah, guess that shit's real. Um, so that's what you know. That is what that action means to her in that context, um, and that explains why she chooses to self-immolate, even though like that sounds like a pretty extreme thing to do. Um, so this is a quote from that video, St. Maud, God is a Self-Portrait. Uh, to understand Maud, you have to understand that her greatest fear is not hell. She is already in hell. It's insignificance. Martyrdom brings death, but it also brings the comforting belief that your suffering has purpose. Um, Maud never speaks this fear aloud, right? Like the movie is not the kind of movie that's like, and then Maud wrote in her journal, I am so afraid of being insignificant it lets you see that it lets you experiencing experience that alongside her like the the scene at amanda's party where she's humiliated like maude is like small and she's being mocked and 
all of this kind like you can feel that insignificance in comparison to these wealthy and powerful people. Yeah, especially um, when you're trying to feel the glory, right? The, right. Of the bigness of, of of being a martyr for God and then these people are just being like, Oh, you so stupid. Yeah. Um so she never says this aloud, but when you see the things that she does, you can see that she is suffering sometimes from self inflicted harm, sometimes from her circumstances. But unless she has some explanation for why that suffering occurs, it's just needless suffering, which feels terrible, right? This is something that everybody grapples with. Like, why does life suck so bad? I don't know. It just does. It just fucking sucks sometimes. (laughs) That's why, you know, that's why we have uh, sayings like, you know, like now I can't think of any. But I know they exist. Like, oh, everything happens for a reason. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God has a plan, et cetera, et cetera. They're meant to alleviate that feeling of like existential dread that nothing has any meaning and all of our yeah. suffering means nothing. Yeah, don't get stuck in that train of thought. Mm-hmm. That's it's f- that's uh, that's why you go go watch everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. Um. So, you know, that's a, that's a real struggle for everybody, mod included. Um. It, but, you know, if she can convince herself that she has a greater purpose on Earth, uh, even if that purpose is to die, all of her suffering now has meaning, mm-hmm. right? Her life is now imbued with meaning because it means that God was pushing her in this specific direction. So even if her purpose is to light herself on fire on a beach, that that means that the the suffering she's experienced from killing the patient was pushing her in in that direction, that ultimate glory. Um, Becoming a saint. Exactly. Um, Notably, she is having an okay, if strained conversation with Amanda toward the end. Like it's, it's It's going okay. It's going okay. It's strained. It's not great, but it's okay. Uh, Compared to some of her other conversations. Right. Uh, Right up until Amanda says, nothing you do matters. And that, you know, it's not Amanda's denial of God that pushes Maud yeah. over the edge. It's not that. I'm sure Maud has heard that before. It's that she, it's that Amanda says her life has no meaning. Um, when she says that, Maud begins to see Amanda as influenced or possessed by the devil and kills her. Uh, she cannot deal with the possibility that all of the suffering she has experienced, including the self-inflicted suffering, has been without meaning. Because if she, if nothing she does matters, then she's been torturing her body and her soul, basically, for a long time for no reason. Yeah, for no reason. And she killed somebody and there's no way that she can like fix that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot to come crashing down on your head at once, especially when you're already in a fragile state. Um, and then it's like, you've, if nothing matters, you've killed this person and like um, you've just simply killed them. And you, does that make you a bad person? Mm-hmm. If there's nothing you can do to take that back. Yeah. Especially when, again, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Mod's Maud, for a extremely pious person. Mod sure does not go to church. Yeah. Or like read the Bible. I know. Do we ever see her read the Bible? Not that I remember, but I did only watch it one time, and it was a few weeks ago. Um, but like, I don't again, think so. Again, you guys, I'm not religious. I've literally never been to church in my like. I've been in a church, but I've not been to a church service ever. But like, it's my understanding that like. I think Jesus died for our sins. Like, <laughs> and she never like quotes any verses. It's, it really kind of feels like she's taken as if you Missy mm-hmm. were like, this is what I think religion is. 
therefore I'm religious. Yeah. It's she it, took the parts that are going to serve herself. Right. And especially and they serve especially her desire for pain and and yeah. punishment as yeah. opposed to like any joy. Unfortunately, the things that serve her are pain. Yeah. Um and one possible explanation for why Maud takes this route of making herself a martyr is this toxic combination of her being religious without having a community. Um, she is going through all of this alone and it's a lot to go through, yeah. right? Like this is, this is intense. Um, if she were able to successfully convert, convert, mm-hmm. if she were able to successfully convert Amanda, she would no longer be alone. But she doesn't. She isn't able to convert Amanda. Mm -hmm. So she is trapped in the same isolation that she was in before. Except now it's a little bit worse because now she feels like she failed that too. Mm -hmm. Um, She does not have anyone to connect with, let alone worship with. She has no community at all. Like she has nobody. Um, Jamie of Witch Bitch wrote about watching this movie during the pandemic and the experience of isolation because of lockdown, mirroring Maude's isolation within the film, which is a perspective I found really interesting. Um, So this is a a quote from that review, which is called The Gift with God, St. Maude. Um, the idea that Maud spends most of the film determined to save Amanda from death without God only to be rejected made me think about the struggles humanity has faced over the last year. Can we really save each other? Is believing in something more an invitation to a community we all need or is it the most isolating thing one can do? Does the afterlife comfort you or does it connect you from the world, disconnect you from the world around you? And, you know, as always in this podcast, I don't think there are easy answers to these questions. Um, For some people, religious community is supportive and helpful. And for others, it's very stifling and destructive and traumatic. Um, But what Maude has what Maude has in this movie is religion with no community. Uh, She attempts to live with nothing but God and later God and Amanda. But Amanda rejects her after Maude tries to control her life. Maude essentially tries to play God. And And she tries to take um amanda's community from her exactly and i don't think it's a community i don't think it's a coincidence rather that Maud and god are so similar oh yeah i didn't think about that <laughs> um while a personal relationship is with god is something i think of a lot a lot of religious people seek i feel like one of the things this movie is suggesting is that a relationship with god can't replace a relationship with people uh, would any of this had happened if Maud had had a community of people to check in with her and look after her I yeah, mean, even like the one person who's like, call me when you need me mm-hmm. and like doesn't pick up her phone. Yeah. And it's just basically like, oh, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. She does have that friend from before who she sort of chases away. But I think that friend is also a reminder of the life that yeah. she's left behind. Um, if Maud hadn't sabotaged Amanda's relationship, they could have been good for one another. And maybe Maud's martyrdom could have been avoided. But Maud's desire for control and this great destiny that would explain her suffering makes that impossible. If she'd had support before then, maybe things would have been different. But of course, we don't see that. That wouldn't make for the good movie. <laughs> Um, this is another quote from St. Maud, God as a self-portrait by Acolytes of Horror. By choosing God over people instead of seeing God in people, she shrinks God into something angry and small. To Maud, these people aren't converts to be loved or even saved. We never even see their faces. They are an audience to marvel at how godly she has become. And this is talking specifically about the ending scene where all of the people kneel in front of her on the beach. In or her th- mind. In her mind um, as she is you know, self-immolating. We we cannot say, right, what would have happened to Maud if things had been different because that information isn't given to us. We're not giving an alternate ending. Like, that's not important to the film. 
But I think it is notable that in the end, all these people gather around her to watch. From her perspective, I don't think that in reality they fell to their knees. No. Exalting. I, they, they show they show them not doing that. I'm pretty sure they show them. Well, you hear them screaming. And I think you hear them see them running to her before yeah. she sees. Um, finally, she has people, right? In this ending scene. Finally, she found her people. She has people, but they are people worshiping her in that ending. Like they, she, they are maybe not worshiping her in the same way that like you would worship God, but they are fixated on her. They are, um, they are witnessing this transformation that she's undergoing, and she's converting all these people, right? Um, her suffering in this moment has meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that she knows how to relate to people without seeing herself as above them. Uh, maybe because she is religious, although I think that's an incomplete explanation uh, because she wasn't religious for her whole life. Uh, or maybe because she's hoping she'll see herself as God's chosen one to make the suffering that she has ex- experienced worth it. Yeah. We we all want some purpose in our lives, right? Like I think that very few people are content b- just being like, eh, it's fine. I know like there are people out there that are okay with that, but there's also like a, a lot of us are looking for some source of meaning in our life and, mm-hmm. and trying to be like, okay, what am I put here to do? Even if it's as simple as, you know, like one of my favorite Mary Oliver quotes that I have on my, on my wall is um, to pay attention. This is our endless and proper work, which is more in the vein of like, you don't have to do great things. Just be in the world. Which is that's enough, which is enough of a purpose for me. Um, But a lot of people, you know, are looking for that purpose, whether it's, you know, to be a great parent, to change the world, to cure cancer or to just, you know, look at a flower and be like, what a fucking great flower. Look at this fucking flower. Look at this. Look at this flower. It's amazing. Like that is the kind of purpose personally that I'm okay with. Um, So uh, we, we, you know, we all want some form of purpose in our lives, um, but most of us don't pursue self-immolation to get there hope not thankfully um interestingly rose glass again the director uh cites taxi driver as an inspiration for this movie i haven't seen taxi driver so i can't make a lot of comparisons between the two but i did read the wikipedia summary you know so uh now you're an expert (laughs) so now i'm an expert uh it's a movie about a man with ptsd returning home feeling alienated struggling struggling to connect with people and ultimately turning to violence to clean up new york um, there are parallels between that story and St. Maud, and I feel like you could make some really interesting arguments about gender if you were to like really sit down and compare the two. Um, but because I haven't seen Taxi Driver and this isn't an episode about Taxi Driver, I'm not going to do that. Um, but with Taxi Driver as an inspiration, we can see that while it might be tempting to read Maud as a frightened victim, um, something that Glass has talked about consciously trying to avoid through the Taxi Driver reference, um, that's not entirely the case, right? Like, Maud is not just a frightened victim. Uh, I think a lot of times Maud is a sympathetic character making some very, very, very bad choices. Uh, I didn't hate Maud while watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. There were times there honestly were times where I was like, God, I identify with that a little bit too much. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like that. I I don't like that at all. <laughs> um, but that's what makes it horror to me is the, is the fact that like watching Maud and feeling like, oh, that's rough. Like that's that sucks. I'm sorry. You know, that's what makes it horror to me. If Maud was just, you know, an unrepentant killer or she hadn't undergone some kind of traumatic event, it would be a lot easier to just be like, eh, who cares? You know? Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, she is, but despite that, despite the fact that she is sympathetic and despite the fact that we know that she has undergone these traumatic events, um, she is making choices, right? Like she is making choices, even if she is mentally ill, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, she makes the choice to dismiss Clara. She makes the choice to kill Amanda. Even if Amanda was possessed by the devil and that was a real fear that you had, you exercise people. You don't kill yeah, you them. Don't kill them. Like she's not very good at being religious. No. Or at least a Christian. We'll get to that as well. <laughs> the, the Catholic Church has, you know, has processes for people who are possessed by demons. But she wouldn't know because she doesn't go to church. Exactly. And she doesn't necessarily have like a denomination. Well, I think the implication is that she is Catholic based on the, the relationship with saints yeah, and that kind of thing. But like, does she go to church? How much does she know about religion that she didn't Google? I can imagine that she's never been to church or else we would have seen something. Mm-hmm. Again, like I also have never been to church. There were times watching this movie where I was like, oof, <laughs> oof. Uh, so, you know, it is again, it is a choice to, to kill Amanda rather than like, seek spiritual help um there is an element of vengeance to Maud's actions that we can't ignore when we're looking at her like yeah mm-hmm. it would be very scary to be attacked by a demon or to believe that you're being attacked by a demon but again they have a process for that called exorcism also she was just attacking her verbally yeah well i mean she did she looked scary she did look scary and she was coming towards her but again that's a very that's a very ill body uh, Amanda's at the very end of her life. Yeah. I guess if she's possessed by a demon, maybe she gets stronger. I don't know. Whatever. Um, this is another quote from St. Maud. God is a self-portrait, again, from Ac- Acolytes of Horror. Maud didn't let herself see God in William Blake or Amanda or even a church, so she only gave him space to be a self-portrait. But if her God is a self-portrait, what does God look like to someone who hates themselves? Hmm. Um, there is certainly an element of delusion to Maud, which again, we'll touch on soon. Uh, but really, with her negative feelings about herself and her emphasis on pain and self-harm, as well as the fact that God's voice is literally her voice distorted, yeah. um, it's not really a surprise that God's final mission for her or her final mission for herself is self-destruction. Yeah. She hates herself for what she did, right? Like she hates she hates herself. She's consumed with guilt and she has no way to get rid of that guilt. I think in part because she doesn't have a community. She doesn't mm-hmm. have anybody to to discuss it with. She doesn't have anybody to like ease her worries or anything like that. I think in fact, I mean it would be hard imagine knowing Maud and knowing what she had gone through to talk about that with her. How can you identify? Yeah. Like that's so that's that's an experience that is so foreign to most of us. That like really all we could offer is empty words like it's not your fault. Okay, well, like I literally felt a man's chest yeah. collapse beneath me and I was covered in his blood. Like and it was my hands. And it was my hands. Like that's a, that's an experience that most of us just can't connect with. Yeah. Um. So to return to the question of whether Maud serves God or serves herself, I think her answer, the answer has to be the latter. Right. Yeah. Um, she made the, the her talking it being her own voice just solidifies that. Yeah, um, she may think that it's the former, but not only is she God, but it just so happens that God's instructions line up pretty well with yeah. her desire to be punished. Uh, God is full of anger, hate, and pain because Maud is full of anger, hate, and pain. Uh, and I started a sentence here and didn't finish it. So what was <laughs> I going to say? I don't know. Who knows? 
Um, this is a quote from St. Maud. God is a self-portrait, again, from Acolytes of Horror. Oh, wait, is this a quote? This is not a quote. So this is something that's discussed in the Acolytes of Horror video. Um, Maud's outward expression of her religion is actually at odds with the teaching of the church mm-hmm. at times. Uh, she wears rosary beads as a necklace when she goes to Amanda's and later to self-immolate, which is not inherently sinful. Um, it's not what you do with rosaries, right? It's not what you do with rosaries. Uh, it can be seen as self so, uh, as uh, disrespectful because a rosary is not jewelry. It's a tool for prayer. So like you could make the argument, right? That like she is wearing it around her neck, not to look beautiful, but to, um, you know, as a means of carrying the beads, but like also the way that she decorates herself then is kind of like the image of what you would think of when yeah. you see a saint, right? Yeah. She seems to be using, you know, the the bed sheets i think it is and the rosary beads to make herself look like what you think a saint would look like even though it is disrespectful to wear rosary beads it really felt like she just googled all this stuff yeah no really (laughs) really um and amanda notes that uh that she didn't know that they made necklaces like saint necklaces of mary magdalene to which maude replies that she got it off of the internet yeah um incidentally catholic.org which is where i was getting some of my in my uh information about whether you can wear rosary beads <laughs> as a necklace um it was at the bottom of that page where i was saying where i was like looking at can you wear rosaries <laughs> as a necklace i got an ad for a saint mary magdalene <laughs> necklace from catholic online shopping um i don't know enough about catholicism to say whether it is unusual to wear a necklace of, of mary magdalene or not like i simply don't know and me trying to google was oh wait no that was on the page about mary magdalene because i was trying to figure out is it weird to wear a necklace of mary magdalene i don't know and then at the bottom it's like here's a necklace, here's of, a mary necklace Ma- of mary magdalene this is what you google yeah um so i don't know i don't know whether it's unusual to wear that but you know it doesn't feel particularly godly to buy your saint necklace off the internet like my image when she said that was that she went to amazon and typed in saint necklace like i i see this whole process of like how do i get forgiveness for killing someone oh it's religion Mm -hmm. oh What's this really? Oh, I hurt myself. Okay. Oh, I need a rosary. Oh, well, that's what it looks like. Oh, I can't like in this whole process where everything just happened because she Googled some stuff. Yeah. And like not like I I believe that she simply didn't know that you're not supposed to wear rosaries oh, yeah. as a necklace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I believe that she was just like, well, it looks like a necklace. So that yeah. must be where it goes. Um, Again, it feels more like she is doing something to let everybody know she is doing something. Um. Or that she's not really connected with the Catholic Church so much as the idea of the Catholic Church. <laughs> For all I know, she Googled Mary Magdalene Saint like I did, ended up on the Catholic.org page, and then saw the necklace advertised at the bottom, except she did, in fact, drop the $79.99 or whatever to buy it. I'm going to... So, like, after, like... N- learning more about like William Blake, I would, I'm going to imagine that Maude probably does not like the institution of church, Mm -hmm. especially since she doesn't seem to like, she does want to seem to want to isolate herself. Mm -hmm. So I like, I would imagine that she doesn't not, maybe doesn't not believe in church, but it maybe not might not be like the most close to God you can be. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can understand that. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons to be distrustful of organized religion. Um, and, you know, again, with Catholic, with the Catholic Church in particular. Um, not that I think that those things particularly bother Maude. Um, she just seems to be on her own mission 
doing her well, own thing. And if she went to the church and said, this is what I'm seeing, they would tell her, no, honey. No, honey. <laughs> they would probably give her an exorcism. Yeah. So it's, so then it's the opportunity for her then to, again, lose her purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I am certainly not here to gatekeep religion as a person who is not religious <laughs> and who is certainly not Catholic. But there does seem to be a lack of lack of depth to Maud's religion. Um, you can buy your necklace online. That doesn't make you not religious. But the fact that she wears the rosary beads incorrectly and that glass makes a point of emphasizing that the necklace is unusual and that Maud bought it online yeah. tells me that it's meant to be noticed. Yeah. Right? It's glass by including those details is is suggesting this is something to pay attention to. And it tells us something about Maud's relationship with religion. Well, and it also feeds into how smug she is. Mm-hmm. That she knows better than yeah. the institution whose tradition she is borrowing to punish herself. Yeah. Um, essentially, that she knows better than God mm-hmm. is what she's saying. Especially, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not that I don't think Maud believes in God. I think she absolutely believes mm-hmm. in God. I just think that, I also think that believing in God and being religious are things that serve her already existing image of herself and her desire for self destruction. It's like a self confirming yeah. prophecy. Yeah. I think, I think that she is. It works. the God. It works for her. Um, you do you, Mod. You do you, Mod. D- don't though. Don't. <clears throat> well, it's too late. It's too late. Um, you have anything else to say about the spirit section? No. The the religion part. Um. No. Okay. Surprisingly, no. So let's talk about the mind. Um, the question that I want to talk about here is what is the movie saying about mental illness? Given what happens to Amanda and Maud. Is it demonizing mental illness, which is very common in horror films, or is it doing something different? Um, and I think I think watching it, it is tempting, especially like just at a surface level, to lean right into uh, another horror movie making it mental illness out to be evil, right? Um, certainly, it seems that Maud is mentally ill, and she does kill a woman and then herself, <laughs> like. That's not great. And traumatizes everybody around. <laughs> yeah, like, like 20 PTSD. people. Um, I wouldn't describe Maud as a good person, right? She's certainly not my model for behavior. But she is seeking out forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, based on what we see of her, I wouldn't say what a great person. Um, but, that does m- but does that mean that the movie is demonizing mental illness? I actually don't think so. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel that way. Um, I th- like, again, I think looking at it on a surface level, if I just told you, oh, it's a movie about a mentally ill woman who murders somebody and then kills herself, you would be like, gross. Yeah. But we have to look at it deeper than that. We have to look at context. We have to look at what else the movie is saying and not just settle on, you know, here are the events that literally transpire. Um, so this is a quote from St. Maud's Rose Glass Explains What's Real and What's Imagined in Her Unholy Horror Debut by Rachel Handler. And this is a quote from Rose Glass in that interview. I was also thinking about how when you see or hear stuff about people blowing themselves up or setting fire to themselves in the name of religion, it's a lazy and quite dangerous way of thinking to dismiss people who do terrible things as just inherently bad or mad people. Being led to do something as extreme as that is not the kind of switch that happens overnight. There's always a long, complicated series of events. I was trying to see if I could get the audience to that point with the character and understand why and how she got there. And okay, yes, I have brought in the director here. So take that with a grain of salt because we don't so much care for what she meant as a director as we do care for how it was executed, right? Just because she says, here's what I meant to do doesn't mean that's what she achieved. Mm -hmm. But I think the movie is actually very successful at this. Um, For much of the movie, we see Maude's pain and isolation and Amanda's dressing down of Maude is genuinely cruel. Yeah. Like when, when Amanda 
goes after her at the party surrounded by rich people and she just like rips this poor girl to shreds in front of them that's an exceptionally cruel thing for amanda and they're all just laughing Mm -hmm. it's terrible awful um, because I read Maud is romantically interested in Amanda, saying she was uncertain if Maud was jealous or a bigot would have stung twice. Yeah. Um, especially in front of a crowd of rich people. Uh, they mock her faith, which is really the only thing keeping her going, and they mock her for her attachment to Amanda. It's an awful, awful thing to do. Yeah. Um, and once she's fired, she slips back into drinking and sex, but the sex is terrible at best and rape at worst. Um by the time she gets a visit from a friend, she is already on the path to self-destruction. Yeah. She's uh, already committed. Yeah. She bought the tickets. Yeah. She's headed to the train. Yeah. Uh, on the pain train. The pain train. Uh, Maude is not really a likable character. Like, I would not want to hang out with Maude. And that's, oh, God, and that's the problem, isn't it? Nobody wants to hang out with <laughs> Maude. Um, she is self-righteous. She's pious. She's judgy. Like, some of the things she says are just so nasty. She's so judgy. Yeah. But I still found her to be empathetic, right? Like, I... S- Watching her, I was not like, ah, fuck this bitch. Well, because she's trying to be a better person. Yeah. This other person that she's trying to get away from just comes out. Mm-hmm. Except for the judginess. I think the judginess is definitely part of the being. I, because she's trying to be a better character, yes. a better person, she does feel really judgy. Like, yeah. mm, I'm trying to be a better person, but are you? Yeah. No. She's not likable at all. Like, no. I don't like her, but I can empathize with her. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't want terrible things to happen to her when I'm watching the movie. I'm not like, okay, I can't. It's not the kind of horror movie where I'm waiting for the punishment to be doled out. You deserve this. Yeah. Um, I want her to get help and I want her to find a community of people that's going to like make her life better. And I think because she's trying to be better that um, like being empathetic and wanting her to get better. That is so important to it. Yeah. Cause she's not just like, well, fuck all y'all. Yeah. She's, she's so lonely. You can tell she's so lonely. Um, the fact that she doesn't ever find that community and that she doesn't ever get help is, is what is tragic and horrific. Right. Um, if we, if we just hated Maud top to bottom, then the ending would feel like justice. Instead. Mm -hmm. It feels like, oof, did oof. You know, like, I mean, it, le- it leaves you speechless, and it's one of those things where you like, I gotta think about that for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is another quote from that interview with Rose Glass by Rachel Handler. Um, so another quote here from Rose Glass. In some of my research, I read that some scholars now believe Joan of Arc may have had a temporal lobe epilepsy accompanied by seizures and hallucinations and this incredible euphoric sense of well-being and bliss. So some believe now that she had this thing and that's how a 13-year-old girl had the conviction to lead an army. Not that I'm saying Maud had the same thing, but some kind of ecstatic, orgasmic, sexual ecstasy and re- religious ecstasy. I spoke to some people who said you could get to this space through meditation and fear whatever is happening in those scenes she's interpreting it as god but tapping into the same part of your brain that you can reach through sex and hallucinogens and meditation as someone who's not religious that's how i can get on board with it i did not know jenna marker's 13 first of all yeah she's very young that's crazy that anyone was like yes yeah that was the strength of her conviction and then she was burned as a heretic so you know by the english not by the french um so What I want to talk about here is something that I don't feel super well informed about enough to go really in depth. Um, But there is a really interesting, like fairly new field called mad studies. Um, And this might be this might be a conversation that when you hear it gets your hackles up. And I think that that's a good thing. And I think I like I because it did for me when I was first reading about it. 
Um, I think that that's a good thing. And I think it's a good time to kind of sit with that feeling of discomfort and like interrogate it. Like, what would it mean if this was true? What would it mean if it wasn't true? Just kind of like if if you listen to this and you're like, that's that's wrong. That's okay. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not a mad studies scholar. Um, But I found it really interesting, especially reading it after watching, you know, reading about it after watching this movie. Um, Missy's asking you to listen to all the pain and then go through your own pain. Yeah. Outside the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly, I I just found this, I found this really interesting. Like I said, I'm not an expert or anything, um, but I think the discomfort with it is a good thing to kind of experience and let yourself like, you know, just be like, okay, what does that mean? What could this mean? Um, I'm not trying to sell you on it or tell you that it's the correct way of thinking because again, I'm not an expert. Um, but it's worth thinking about entertain the idea for a moment, even if it's uncomfortable. Um, so this field of study is called mad studies, uh, kind of strives to do with madness, what queer and women's studies did for queerness and gender, uh, namely to normalize mental illness, which is a term that, um, people in mad studies don't always agree with. Um, madness is still generally seen as a negative descriptor, but mad studies scholars have chosen to adopt the word mad specifically um, and purposefully in, in again, in, in much the same way that uh, queer studies scholars did with queer, right? Like, yes, queer was often used as a slur and as a negative, but has since been reclaimed. Um, it's a very useful word. It is a very useful word. And not a, that doesn't mean, again, that you have to like it. it. And same thing with mad. Like, I can see why somebody wouldn't want to be called mad. And I'm not saying that they should. Like, that mad should be something that we refer to people as. But again, if you're uncomfortable with that, I think it's valuable to be like, okay, why am I uncomfortable with mm-hmm. that? What does it mean to be uncomfortable with that term? And it doesn't mean, well, I have to use it now. It just means like people have chosen it for a reason. It wasn't. It wasn't a um, a thoughtless decision. Yeah, it's not like crazy studies. Yeah, and I mean, which they, I have no issue with the word crazy. They could have they could have used that too and and done something similar with mm-hmm. it, but they chose mad for a reason. Mad's cooler. It does it does sound a bit cooler. I want to put like a, the Mad Hatter's hat on <laughs> as we talk about this. Um. So the the purpose that's the most important part that it sounds really cool. <laughs> Um, so again, this field of studies aims to normalize mental illness and question how it is treated in our culture. Um, sometimes this people take this to mean that mad studies scholars are opposed to psychiatry and medical treatment for mental health concerns, but that isn't necessarily the case. Um, some people certainly feel that way, but not everybody does. So, you know, don't, don't assume that just because mad studies exist means that people don't want you to seek treatment for mental health I want concerns. you to seek treatment. Yeah. Um, one goal of mad studies is not to say nobody should ever get treatment, but to emphasize that there are many ways of experiencing the world. So something like Joan of Arc having epileptic seizures and leading an army is an interesting thing to consider in this light, right? Joan of Arc and many of her contemporaries believed she was chosen by God. If we leave God out of the equation and think that maybe Joan of Arc was mad, but she did all of these great things not in spite of but because of her madness where does that leave us with our relationship to madness Mm -hmm. right like if if it's not if god isn't involved but joan of arc's madness made her do all of this stuff then who are we to say that madness is inherently bad Mm -hmm. right now again i want to stress that this way of looking at madness does not mean that people shouldn't seek treatment for example, uh, i am living a much better life now that i am in therapy and working to improve my mental health well, wait, wait, treatment doesn't also get rid of your mental health. Yeah. Like you like 
I still deal with the issues that like my mental health, even though I am medicated, Mm -hmm. like I still deal with like my brain works differently. Like depression seeps in, anxiety Mm -hmm. always seeps in. And so like it treatment just makes things where you can like manage it better. Right. You still have those issues. I'm still not normal. Yeah. So like I, you know, I'm living, like I said, living a much better life now that I am in therapy and working to improve my mental health. But counterpoint Anxiety, I think, has made me a more empathetic person. Uh, I think that anxiety is... I would not call my anxiety a good thing. I wish I didn't have anxiety. Um, But at the same time, I think it's made me more empathetic. And and it's it's just that sometimes or often it goes way too far, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I would... I think that's true because oftentimes I've heard it usually when I'm at work for some reason, probably because people are dumb um, that I used to work with. Um, oftentimes I'd hear people complain about their children or their significant other, like being lazy or not doing something. In the, and my first reaction every time is, are you sure they're not depressed? Mm-hmm. Because that's a whole different battle. Right. And I'm so much more, I don't want to think someone's lazy mm-hmm. just out of nowhere. Because what is laziness? Yeah. Right. Like, is it, I had this actually just this discussion fairly recently on um, uh, post game, the side quest podcast um, about my resistance to um, there's a uh, sorry, I'm rehashing a discussion (laughs) that I had elsewhere, but um, in the game a bewitching revolution, um, which is inherently about communism, um, like it is intentionally about that. There is a, a line that is, let us be lazy in everything except uh, shit, I can't remember what it was, but it's like, let us be lazy in everything except laziness is essentially the, uh, the, um, the gist of what it's saying. And I'm, I was very resistant to that idea when I heard it, like it did kind of get my hackles up, but that's because I think of laziness in terms of myself, which is like, I need to, I need Sorry, I'm laughing because the least lazy person I know is you. Like literally the least lazy person I know is you. Um, like, uh, to me, like to me, laziness is when I need to do a task like um, refill your tissue, box. like refill my fucking tissue box. But I choose not to because it's not important to me or because I don't want to go get the tissues to do it. Um, but, you know, if I if I try to apply that to somebody else, I don't know what their situation is. They could mm-hmm. be they could not be doing that for any number of reasons. Right. Um, anyway, we kind of got off track there, yeah. but that's OK. Um we always get off track. We always get off track. Uh, just to kind of uh, return to what I what what I was saying is, you know, I think that anxiety has made me a more empathetic person. Um, but it goes too far and that's where that's where the problem is. Um, and those the places where it goes too far are the urges that I curb with therapy. And something that my therapist has even discussed with me is the fact that my mental illnesses and behaviors are not necessarily bad or good. They just are. Mm-hmm. Like he has encouraged me to look at things that I have seen as like hindrances to my life and say, okay, but what if they're not bad? And it's like, well, well, fuck you, sir. Well, I don't know. What if they weren't? And he's like, oh, I don't know. What if they weren't? <laughs> I hate those questions. <laughs> They're good questions. But like when I'm in therapy, it's always those like, but like, what if it didn't happen that way? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't see that. <laughs> the point is not that I shouldn't get treatment because I could be Joan of Arc. Um, you could be. Who, who was burned at the stake. So like, I don't really want to be Joan of Arc. Yeah. I'm con- Again, I'm content to let my life's p- purpose be looking at a pretty flower. Um. <laughs> 
but rather that the way we think of mental illness encourages us to jump right from symptom to cure without any real dwelling in that middle space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that prevents us from looking at causes of mental illness beyond chemistry, such as you know environment, poverty, capitalism, climate catastrophe, etc., and suggests that mental illness is something broken and in need of, in need of fixing. It can be, but that's not always true, right? Like again, I think that there can be positive experiences that come from mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that every experience is positive, nor do I feel that you must love your mental illness or you're doing it wrong. I, like I said, I, I fucking hate having anxiety. I hate having PTSD. It sucks ass, right? Like, I don't like it at all. But at the same time, like, as my therapist would say, you know, is it bad? The thing, the thing, the thing that we want to make clear here is that we're not advocating that, no. like, mental illness is a super great experience and we should all do it. Um, Actually, I think it sucks. Yeah, it really sucks. But at the same time, like we don't have to view mental illness itself or madness itself as negative. It is, it is potentially a different way of experiencing the world. Um, So to return to St. Maud, I think it's clear that Maud is dealing with untreated PTSD from her experience Mm -hmm. with the patient who died. She also seems to have a seizure um, Mm -hmm. after she like drinks to excess. I wonder if her, orgasms could be seen as seizures too yeah that's again that's something that um can be tied in like because again talking referring to joan of arc like that is a potential explanation for the religious ecstasy that she experienced going back to saint Teresa, she was very ill like she was she was just a sickly person Mm -hmm. and she was experiencing this religious ecstasy Hmm. as well um so you know, Maud has this seizure midway through the movie, much like Joan of Arc. And since that's glass talking in the quote, we do know that that is an inspiration. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be this this confluence of mental and physical health concerns that even if they don't directly cause her hallucinations and behavior, certainly aren't helping, mm-hmm. you know. So like, so what, <laughs> you know, is Maud doomed to become a murderer and a martyr because of her health, both mental and physical? Of course not. I think that the movie is very intentionally not saying that. Yeah. And I think that's what's so important about the not demonizing it. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, like, I think when you pair this reasoning with this movie, it really does help being like, no, that's not as like a demonizing yeah. mental health. Um, I think, yeah, I think the movie is very intentionally not saying that Maude is destined to be a murderer and a martyr. I think that it's, it's showing us these missed opportunities. It's showing us this relationship with Amanda that, that was cut short. It's showing us this relationship with the friend that doesn't quite connect. Like she reached out for, she was reaching out for help. She called her and called her and called her and she didn't pick up. Um, It's showing us all of these missed opportunities where things could have been different, but weren't. Yeah. Um, but the issue is that Maud doesn't know she has a problem, right? Her visions are real to her. Yeah. Uh, and she doesn't have anybody she can talk to about them. She's entirely alone. And when she tries to form a relationship with someone, a relationship that is impacted by her religion and her delusions, it backfires on her and sends her, sends her spiraling. Mm-hmm. Would that have happened if mental illness wasn't stigmatized or if Maud wasn't ashamed or put off from discussing her visions? We don't have that information, right? We cannot know for certain. But I do find it interesting to consider this in the context of MAD studies, because while Maud is not likable, she is someone we can empathize with. Mm-hmm. We don't want Maud to suffer, at least not up until she kills Amanda. Which is even then, like Amanda sucks. Amanda does suck, but I also, again, I also empathize with Amanda. Like, yeah, it, Amanda's trying to apologize on her deathbed. She is trying to apologize. She's just not very good at it. Um, 
Maud is experiencing the world and interpreting the world in a way that is different from the way most of us experience it, but that itself is not the bad thing, I don't think. It's that she has to do it alone, and that loneliness is what drives her further and further into extremism and eventually to murder and self-immolation. Mm-hmm. The question for me is, what prevented Maud from being Joan of Arc-like in her madness, right? Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume timing. A timing, sure. Um, but lack of community, lack of belief. Would it have even been a good thing for Maud to be like Joan of Arc? Again, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. She didn't have a super great... She but we short, remember her. But we sure remember her. <laughs> um, we don't have answers for these questions and we don't need them. The point is to consider it and what a different world would look like, even if the conclusion you reach is actually Maud really should have just seen a therapist and a doctor and should probably be in prison on account of murdering somebody. Yeah. But I bet she could have found a really, like a church that would have been like, you are... Mm-hmm. You are a martyr. And maybe that's not, maybe that wouldn't be a good thing. But yeah. the, the point, the point that I want to make here is less that like, it's not that Maude is evil and mentally ill or that she's evil because she's mentally ill or that, you know, religious visions are the only source is mental illness um, or any of those things. It's more so that I think this movie puts us in a position to be like, wow, what if Maude had had a community? What if somebody had helped Maud? Would we be here? Would we be here? And I find I find that really interesting. And you know, it's it's a difficult thing to consider because the movie is throwing at us violence and delusion. It's a horror movie. Yeah, it's it's throwing a lot of uncomfortable things at us. But I think when we use that mad studies lens to consider like, okay, what if her what if her madness is not a problem? Yeah. What if the world in which she lived in had a way to help her cope? Yeah. Instead of, you know, nails. Yeah. What if her madness isn't a problem? What's the problem? Isolation, loneliness, untreated trauma. Like those are problems. Mm -hmm. If if she experienced this this relationship with God that causes her religious ecstasy, would that be a problem if she had a support system? I mean, there's nothing wrong with her like getting off to god no you do you it becomes an issue when she starts hurting herself and Mm -hmm. she hurts others yeah and that that's what i that's what i found really compelling about the movie was that on this on a surface level yes it is a movie about a mentally ill woman who murders somebody and then you know commits suicide and that doesn't sound great Mm -mm. um but when you consider it in context you can see that like it's not just it's not just mental illness that pushes her there, right? Yeah. It's trauma, it's grief, it's loneliness, mm-hmm. it's isolation. This all created a psychosis situation in which people usually are put in, in the hospitals for. Right. Um, and yeah, I just, I found that really interesting to consider through the mad studies lens. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not saying that like, if you, if you heard all the mad study stuff and you're like, no, that sounds terrible. That's okay. I'm not, I'm, you know, again, I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm not even trying to convince you, but I think the the experience of hearing it and and especially in the context of St. Maud, which I don't know if Rose Glass knows anything about mad studies or cares about it whatsoever. But looking at it through that lens, I think was very revealing because, yes, Maud appears to be mentally ill. Um, but is her mental illness the problem? And I, I don't think it is. I think that there's so many other uh, if you like if you put Maud on you know antipsychotic medication and she no longer had visions would her life be better we don't know not only do we not know but like she'd still be living in this like 
situation with no friends, apparently really no family, mm-hmm. no community. And she'd be having this grief and like f- this trauma that she's carrying around and it wouldn't go away. Yes, she would stop having visions, but like, would her life be materially better? And that I think that's the kind of question that 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 helps us like grapple with. And that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's all I have to say. I the first, when I watched this movie, I was like, that was pretty good. And then the more I thought about it, the more I really liked it. Yeah, I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it and being like, this is this is good. And then that last scene happened that two seconds, not even. And I'm just like, fuck. <laughs> yeah it's a really good movie yeah I, it's very very effective i'm excited to see you know what rose glass works on next because especially for a you know a, the first feature film that's that's crazy yeah it was it was it was good um so that's it do you have anything else to add no cool uh so that's it for this uh, this episode um, you can find us online at fakinggirlscast.com which has all of our previous episodes for you to check out um you can also, if you would like to join the fun conversations in our Discord, uh, shoot me an email, contact at fakeygirlscast.com, and I will get you a Discord invite. Um, hot topics in the Discord include vampires, uh, Jane Austen. I think yesterday was the, the big one, was everybody was talking about Jane Austen. Um, God, what else do we talk about? Uh, Empire Wastes. Empire Wastes? Always a hot topic. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't lots know. Of stuff. We talk about lots of stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, again, shoot me an email, contact at fakeygirlscast.com and I can get you an invite to that discord. Um, it's not private. It's just unlisted, unlisted so that I don't have to um, be present every moment of every day, making sure that weirdos don't come in and start posting racial slurs or something, um, which is a real problem with discord. Uh, next time we are going to be talking about the first three matrix movies, including the animatrix. So it's going to be, the Matrix 1, The Animatrix, and whatever the second one is called. I think the second one is Reloaded. I think... I don't know. Whatever I said the third one was called, it's called Revolutions. It's not called whatever I said. I don't know what I said, but it pro- it was probably wrong. Um, after that, it's going to be The Matrix 3 and 4. So Revolutions and the new one, Resurrection? Resurrected? Something like that. Whatever. I don't know. Movies should just be called 1, 2, 3, 4. I agree. All of them. But you Nothing know what? Else. But you know what? It's weird when a book ha- does that. I guess, yeah. I think it's weird when a book has a number in it. Hmm. Not like just a random number, but if it's like title two. I think that's weird. I don't know why. Hmm. I don't know why. Um, and after that, we're going to be pushing. We're going to be pushing daisies. No, we're going to be mean, pushing daisies. That would mean we're dead. We're going to talk about pushing daisies. And I am jazzed. And I am jazzed <laughs> for all of us that are jazzed. Um, we are... We are few but mighty. Um, the jazz team. The jazz team, as as you know. <laughs> we all know. If you know, you know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's it. All right. Catch on the flip side. Hopefully not burning. <laughs> <laughs>